Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, we're back with a new episode of Talking France. We've got a strong lineup of subjects this week, if I may say so, starting with France's planned changes to immigration laws. They've been on the table a long while, but the plans look likely to cause the next big political flare-up in France. We'll explain all. Now, you might know the French name Bernard Tapie, but do you know his story? We'll explain why he's the subject of a new Netflix series. And ski resorts are closing for good in the Alps, and France's mountain refuge for hikers are also threatened by the warming planet. If you're a fan of alpine winter or summer holidays, then we'll tell you exactly how you might be affected. France has announced exciting plans to follow Germany by introducing its own nationwide bargain transport pass. We'll find out the details and hear from our colleague over the border in Germany about how the pass has worked there. We'll also look at a system that allows you to get a property in France cheaper than market value, although there is one downside, you have no idea when you can move in. And stay to the end for our French expression of the week, where we'll tell you how to complain like the locals. I'm Ben McPartlin, your host, and joining me at the mic this week will be... Any volunteers, guys? Please help me out. Luckily, Emma Pearson, our editor's got her hands up. And <laughs> so is Jen, our journalist. Thanks, guys, for helping me out this week. And John Litchfield will also join us on the line from Normandy. Now, let's face it, we are waiting anxiously for the next political ruckus to kick off in France. And it's looking more and more likely to be the ever thorny issue of immigration. President Emmanuel Macron's government have had a bill on the table for months now, but it's still there on the table, that is. And somehow it's managed to anger pretty much everyone. The issue has kicked off once again this week. Emma, tell us what's happened. Well, the front page of France's largest leftist daily, Liberation, was on Tuesday dedicated to an open letter signed by 35 mostly leftist and centrist politicians, including six members of Emmanuel Macron's party, on the subject of immigration. I see. They do love an open letter in France. What was in this one then? Well, they're calling for three things. Firstly, an immediate amnesty for all undocumented workers in sectors such as the building trade, hospitality, deliveries, and domestic care. They're calling for an end to the rule that forbids asylum seekers to work while their claim is processed. And they're also calling for an end to the chaotic situation at certain prefectures, which the letter says, quote, every day creates new undocumented workers due to lack of appointments at the prefecture or delays in processing applications. And this is certainly something that many of our listeners will have experienced. Now, of those three, it's the amnesty for undocumented workers that has made the biggest splash. The letter calls the move urgent, compassionate and practical. And it essentially says that this should happen partly because it's the right thing to do for those people who are already here and already working hard, and partly because it's the right thing for businesses and for the country. They kind of point to this hypocrisy that means that the country both denounces undocumented workers, but at the same time relies on undocumented workers to prevent the complete collapse of certain sectors. And if you live in France, it's highly likely that 
that an undocumented worker will have at one time either cooked you a meal, delivered you a parcel or a takeaway, or perhaps even helped to care for one of your elderly relatives. And of course, that's not a situation that's unique to France. But we should say that an amnesty for undocumented workers is actually a fairly mainstream idea on the left in France. This has this isn't like some mad idea coming out of nowhere. In Paris and the other big cities, you'll fairly regularly see demonstrations or posters perhaps calling for the regularisation, and plenty of leftist politicians will support it. Now, this letter that we're talking about, it was signed by MPs and senators representing six parties, the Greens, the centrist Modem, plus six MPs from Macron's centrist party, LREM, plus representatives from Parti Socialiste, the Communist Party, and the Liot Group, which largely represents France's overseas territories. Okay, so I'll let you say it's not quite a new idea, but why is it making front page news right now, Emma? Well, it's because of the political context and especially around Emmanuel Macron's new immigration bill, which you just talked about. And that's due to come back before Parliament this autumn. We've talked about this bill on the podcast before. It was supposed to be presented before Parliament last year and it was pulled just because it was unlikely to pass. Now, before the the summer break, the former centre-right party, Les Républicains, who would have been the natural allies to push this bill through Parliament, they published their own ideas for an immigration bill, this time in the form of an interview with their new leader, Eric Ciotti. And what they called for was the expulsion from France of all undocumented foreigners, the creation of a new criminal offence of being in France without the correct papers, reduction of healthcare provisions for non-French nationals and also tougher conditions for seeking asylum in France. So you've got the left and the right both communicating through newspapers who are on the one hand demanding that all undocumented workers be kicked out of the country and on the other hand calling for a complete amnesty of undocumented workers. And in the middle is Macron attempting, as he always does, to balance the two demands. And let's not forget, of course, that his party no longer has an overall majority in Parliament. So if he's got any chance at all of getting this bill to pass, he needs at least some of the opposition MPs to back him. Mm, Okay, let's bring in our politics expert, John Litchfield here, who joins us from Normandy. John, Macron doesn't have a majority to get new laws through. As we know, he's got the left on the one side, the right on the other, both demanding very different approaches to immigration. A showdown is looming, John, as you wrote in your column this week. How can Macron succeed here? Well, I mean, he, he himself seems to have made it the new pension reform in the sense it's become partly by his insistence on the bill, which has been around for nearly a year now and has been withdrawn several times and changed and then brought back again. He seems to have decided this is going to be the kind of benchmark of whether he's able to govern or reform the country in the next four years. And he needs to get this through Parliament before Christmas, or maybe they're now suggesting maybe early next year. How can you do it? Well, the original bill was intended to be something for everyone. It's perhaps what people always accuse Macron of, of being, you know, on même temps at the same time this, the same time that. There was something in there necessary to control illegal immigration more, in fact, to send back people who arrive and are found to have arrived illegally, either through being failed asylum seekers or having snuck into the country. Very few of those are actually sent back at the moment. The country has no way of knowing where they are quite often. And so there are lots of new stuff in there to make that more possible, to simplify procedures, to to remove people that have no right to be here. At the same time, that bill had a recognition that actually a lot of illegals are here and they're contributing to the economy and more of them are perhaps needed in certain areas of industry like uh, building trade, catering especially, and it wouldn't make sense to select certain illegal immigrants and give them the right to have work permits in which they could then qualify to remain permanently. Now, that was therefore intended somewhat to appeal to the left, but in, in a sense, both parts of the law made sense, but whether yoking it together into this kind of good cop, bad cop 
law made sense uh, is not clear. It certainly hasn't got got, got anywhere. Can he win? I don't know. I mean, you know, the centre-right Republicans, as always, are the swing votes. Their rhetoric has gone to that of the far right on immigration. The last thing they want is to sort of bring down the government, which could happen if Macron uses the 493 powers again and the centre-right decides to support a censure motion that could bring down the government, which could force new elections, which the centre-right would probably be one of the biggest losers. But they've sort of staked their whole future on being as tough as or more tough than the far-right on immigration. So that would be a difficult one for them. It could cause a train wreck for Macron. It seems he's looking for a way out, as usual. He's looking for a way of trying to finesse it. There's even talk of maybe having a referendum to change the constitution to make it possible to have a referendum on immigration. I don't think that's going to go very far, very quickly. So sometime early next year, there's going to be, I think, a, a real moment of truth for Macron on this. Does he really want to get the immigration law through? Can he afford to wait till the European elections in June when Front National, Rassemblement National is already due to do quite well and not have achieved anything on immigration for over a year or nearly 18 months at that time? He's going to have to either sort of bite the bullet and risk having a 493 and a, a censure motion, like he nearly lost on pensions, but just one, or he's going to have to withdraw the law or split up the law and, and uh, defy his own left and the, and the right or left of the country. Where that's all going to go, I'm not sure. I think a long delay is most likely, but even that isn't a very good option. Interesting thoughts as ever from John there. And a reminder, you can read his latest column on the subject of immigration in France on the local.fr. Now, if you've been following French politics scene or indeed French football over the last 30 odd years, you might be familiar with the name Bernard Tapie. How much do you know about Tappy and why he's been such a huge figure in France over the years until his death in 2021? People have often said his compelling life story could be made into a TV series. And well, that's exactly what's happened. It's on Netflix and it's out this week. Tell us about it, Emma. Well, it's this seven episode miniseries about the life of Bernard Tappy. It's very sort of glossy in its style. It looks a bit like Dallas or Dynasty aesthetically. It's got quite a lot of it set in Marseille, which looks beautiful on film, as it always does. And honestly, I am surprised it's taken so long to make a series about Tappy's life because there's certainly a lot of drama there. Although it is possible that for legal reasons, they had to wait until he died because there's also quite a lot of legal controversy there. Fair point, yeah. And there's still some controversy. His family are very strongly opposed to this series. They say that it's fiction, it's not true. Although... I think it's fair to say that Tappy himself was not always the most truthful person. So perhaps in that sense, this series is quite a fitting tribute to his life. Indeed. The Newswire AFP, Agence France Presse, described Tappy as swashbuckling. Emma, why was he swashbuckling? Tell us. Swashbuckling is a great word, isn't it? Um, quite apt, I think, because he was certainly a larger-than-life character. Basically, he was a businessman, but he was also a football club president. He was a government minister, briefly. He was occasionally a pop singer, and he spent time as a prisoner. It's quite a roller coaster of mm. life. So he started his business career in the 70s, and he specialised in buying bankrupt or nearly bankrupt companies and turning them round, most famously the sportswear brand Adidas. And in 1986, he became the president of the Olympique Marseille Football Club, which then went on to have an astonishingly successful run. It won the French League five times in a row and in 1993 also won the Champions League title. The triumph ensured that Tapie, who's actually from Paris, got local legend status in Marseille, which he still enjoys. But in 1993, he was accused of match fixing. The case related to a fairly unimportant match, really, against a much smaller club. But basically the charge was that Tapie fixed the match so that the club could rest their important players for the historic Champions 
Champions League final, which was coming up. He was found guilty of that. He served a six-month prison sentence for match-fixing and Marseille was stripped of its French league title that year. He also found time to be elected as MP for Bouche du Rhône, which includes Marseille, in 1989. And he served two stints as the Urban Affairs Minister under François Mitterrand in the 1990s. Wow, OK. Now, look, the fanatical supporters of Marseille obviously remember him for the success the club enjoyed during his reign rather than that match-fixing. But that wasn't the only legal wrangle tap he was involved in over the years, Emma. Yeah, that's right. He was also involved in what I think might be the longest and most complicated case in French legal history. Honestly, I was near to tears when I was trying to research this and figure out everything that happened. But very basically, it started in 1993. It was still ongoing when Tappy died in 2021. And it instead a number of high profile political figures, including Christine Lagarde, who is now the president of the European Central Bank. So it relates to Adidas, which was nearly bankrupt when Tappy bought it in 1990. He turned the company around and he actually introduced that famous three-stripe logo, which they still use, and then he sold it in 1993. Now, he claimed that he'd been cheated on the Adidas sale price and he was eventually awarded €400 million in compensation after the state-run Credit Lyonnais bank was found to have undervalued the brand. But after several appeals and further court cases, he was actually ordered to pay that money back and then he was charged, but then acquitted of embezzling public funds as a result of the payout. And basically, the allegation was that there was political interference, that the ruling in his favour and the award of this massive payout was rigged in Tappy's favour because it was approved by the then finance minister, Christine Lagarde, under then-president Nicolas Sarkozy. He was a long-time Tappy ally and friend. Lagarde, who is now, as I said, the head of the European Central Bank, she was later charged, but then absolved of criminal negligence over what became known in France as l'affaire Tappy, which, as I said, ran for ages, mm. decades. Now, Tappy, as I mentioned, died in 2021 at the age of 78 after a long battle with cancer. And after his death, French politicians, including Macron, you know, lined up to kind of pay tribute to his courage and tenacity. But Emery's final years showed how far the once powerful tycoon had fallen. Yeah, so in, by the late 90s, he'd been declared bankrupt. So he was barred from running a business. He was barred from running for political office. And he was also banned from involvement in football clubs because of that match-fixing conviction. But, and I think... I think, honestly, this is where I really had to admire him. He then took up a fourth career as an actor, singer, and sometimes TV host. i got to say, the clips that I could find of his singing career were all pretty dreadful. But, you know, at least he, uh, at least he didn't give up, carried on there. And although I think these days most people regard him as a fairly sleazy businessman, he still inspires a lot of love in Marseille, uh, partly because of those football titles. And partly also, I think, because the Marseillais do have this slight tendency to like anyone who's rejected by the establishment in Paris. So he was the the outsider figure and they do still love him down there very good point and just finally when's this series out uh, it's out now oh um, excellent so people can the, watch it all seven episodes out on, uh, on Netflix brilliant thanks Emma the French Alps as we know are changing and there was another sign this week of the depressing and alarming impact of climate change this week a ski resort near the famous lakeside town of Annecy announced that it was closing down for good the reason as you might have guessed is that there's just not enough snow which obviously has consequences. Jen, tell us about this resort. The resort is called La Sambouille. Uh, it was a small and family-friendly resort with 10 runs and three chairlifts. It was at 1,200 meters elevation, so a relatively low altitude resort compared to somewhere like Val d'Isère that's over 2,500 meters above sea level. But I think La Sambouille is important to talk about because it really paints a picture of what could be coming for a lot of France's ski resorts over the next few years. 
So the local mayor and the resort manager, Jacques Delex, told Europe One that he's seen the climate change a lot since the resort first opened in the 1960s. He said, now there is less snow in the winter. This year, we only opened for four weeks. That's it. The season is getting shorter and shorter, and obviously it is not going to get any better. Sad news. Jen, last winter, we reported how many ski resorts at lower altitudes in France, whether the Pyrenees, the Jura, or the Alps had had to close down in January. They also were only open for a few weeks, basically because the snow dried up. Predictions from forecasters are not positive either for the future. You are the bearer of bad news, Jen. Come on. Yeah, like I said, La Sambouille is is really not the only French resort that has struggled with a lack of snow. A new study by the journal Nature Climate Change found that 91% of European ski resorts are threatened by global warming. And then in France specifically, a Euronews report found that those resorts at low to middle altitude, meaning those that are under 1,700 meters in elevation, face a very significant risk. And to put that in perspective, as of 2018, low and middle altitude resorts represented more than 70% of all the ski areas in France, according to the country's court of audits. And I was actually in the Alps over the weekend, and I spoke with a few people in the town of Moutier who mentioned that most of their revenues come from the ski season and they're already nervous about what's going to be in store for this year. Understandable anxiety about the coming winter season. Now, Jen, you were telling me about this trip to the Alps you've just been on, uh, and it's not just skiers that are going to be affected by climate change. Thousands of hikers who head to the Alps each summer might also have to adjust. Tell us more. Yes, uh, I went hiking uh, in the Vanoise National Park over the weekend. It was beautiful. And we stayed in a refuge, which was an incredible experience. But sadly, it is another way that tourism in the Alps could be negatively affected by climate change. So refuge, they're super cool. They're basically like mountain hostels. They're usually in really remote parts of the mountain and you hike up to them. And then once you get there, depending on the refuge, you get a home cooked dinner and a warm place to sleep. And they've been part of Alpine culture for decades. They started off as shelters for shepherds and then they became important resting points for alpinists trying to summit the really tall mountains like Mont Blanc. But because they're in these really remote areas, you know, at the tops of mountains, they are quite vulnerable. The ones that are located next to glaciers are at particular risk of snow melting too quickly. So there was a refuge in Isère that had to close down permanently last year because of, quote, accelerated melting from the Pilate Glacier that destabilized the bedrock on which the building stood. So, yeah, that had to close down completely just because of accelerated melting. And then other refuge that are far away from water supplies have been particularly vulnerable to drought. So during the summer of 2022, one refuge in the Banoise region was forced to close because of a lack of water. And then another in the Akan National Park had to close its doors in August 2023 for the same reason. Mm. Now, are they doing anything to adapt these refuges? Yeah, they're trying their best. Um, Mathilde Dassonville, who's the head of refuge at the Vanoise National Park, told France Bleu that they've started mapping out possible scenarios like closing off showers or maybe only offering dinner instead of all three meals at certain refuges that are impacted by drought. But really, it remains to be seen how quickly climate change impacts these refuges. Mm. I was at one in near Annecy, actually, uh, in the summer. It's a refuge Parmelon. Really recommend it. But they had a, an old cable that went from the refuge, which is kind of perched on top of a mountain right down to the valley below and it used to be supplied by cable all the supplies would be lifted up by cable but they turned it off and now they're all pretty much supplied by helicopter which is really expensive but the guy who runs the refuge was talking about reopening this cable to get the supplies back up because it is 
becoming more and more problematic to supply them and, and expensive. In general, Jen, refuges you recommend to uh, listeners to go and stay in one? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a really, really unique experience. So basically, yeah, you get to hike all the way up there. So you see the really beautiful views along the way. And then usually they're perched at just the right spot where you can get this incredible view over the mountains, over the valley. It's it's amazing. All right. That's the good point. The, the yeah. bad point is you are lined up in a small <laughs> sleeping area with about 16 other hikers. Uh, you, are, you can hear them snoring. Yeah, a little smelly. They all sorts of bodily noises throughout the night. Did you get any sleep? Honestly, I slept fine, but I think most people will sleep fine because you're really tired after a long day of hiking and you probably eat a really nice dinner at the refuge. Mm. And so, you know, after a little bit of dinner, maybe a glass of wine, you lay down and you forget that there's eight other people in the room with you. <laughs> they do have wine and beer, but they don't, or some of them don't have running water, at least the one I was at. So no yeah. showers, uh, toilets are primitive. Thanks, Jen, for all that information on ski resorts and refuges. Here on Talking France, we love trains. Well, we love French trains anyway. So we got excited by a couple of new announcements by the French government. Emma, spill the beans. Yeah, loads of exciting train news this week. So the first announcement is that France is going to get its own discount rail pass and it's modelled on the famous €49 ticket that Germany brought in last year. We don't at this stage have a lot of detail on how the French model will work, it must be said, but we know it'll launch next summer. We know it'll be a rail pass that will offer unlimited travel on Intercité and the local TER services, but not on the TGV or the international routes. We don't know exactly how much it will cost, but the Transport Minister, Clement Bone, when he was announcing it, he said that it was modelled on the German pass and it would cost around €49. Okay, so who better to give some insight into what this French transport pass might look like than Rachel Loxton, the host of the local Germany's Germany in Focus podcast. Rachel has spent many hours talking and writing about Germany's transport pass and joins us on the line from Berlin. Rachel, good to have you with us. Firstly, just explain how Germany's pass worked. The 49 euro ticket or the Deutschland ticket, as we also call it here, it came about from the 9 euro ticket. So I don't know if you remember, Ben, but we were so excited about the 9 euro ticket last year in Germany. And that was brought on as part of a lot of measures to help people during the energy crisis. And it was kind of seen as a thank you to the population for their efforts. You could use local public transport anywhere in Germany for just nine euro a month for three months over the summer. And the only thing you couldn't use is long distance trains. And that's exactly the same idea as for the 49 euro ticket that we have now. But what was interesting is that the nine euro ticket was so easy. You could literally just buy it in a ticket machine. So it was simple even for tourists to use. Once that was over, everyone who used public transport was like, we need this nine euro ticket back. <laughs> that was amazing. So the transport ministers of all the states, they talked about it for a long time. There was a lot of disagreements over funding. And eventually they decided on the 49 euro ticket. And the difference with this is a subscription. So you have to subscribe to it kind of monthly, although you can cancel it. So it's, it's a bit less easier to use. There were a lot of problems in the beginning when it came in in, in May this year. But overall, yeah, it's like a discounted travel pass. Okay, so look, the big question is, sounds great, but has it been a success in Germany? Well, <laughs> that, that is a good question. Since it only came in at the start of May, it's a little bit tricky to say if it's, you know, if it's been a complete success. And that would be that if it's making many more people leave their cars at home and take public transport. But if you ask the transport minister in Germany, Volker Wissing, he said recently that it was a total success because 11 million subscriptions to this ticket had been sold by the end of July, I believe. 
And he mentioned a million new customers in public transport. Deutsche Bahn said they've seen a 25% increase of passengers on regional trains. So that does seem very good, but it's also been summer. And so many people are traveling again out and about, especially after the pandemic. And summer searchers are a bit more critical, saying things like, this ticket is much more in demand with people who would previously have bought expensive subscriptions. That's probably, I probably fall into that category. It's a good deal for me. And people who were occasional customers, and it's still seen as a bit too expensive for many drivers who maybe don't see the point in switching to it. Really interesting. Now, you mentioned how excited you guys at the local Germany were about it. Um, you've written copious yes. amounts of articles on it. But just uh, people around you in Germany, you know, has it been popular, you know, from people you talk to? What do they say about it? Yeah, my impression is that it is really popular. I think people like it, especially if they are in places where there are good connections. One of the issues is actually that quite a lot of Germany doesn't have good connections. We forget sometimes in the cities because we have in Berlin, we have the underground, the overground, the buses, the trams. So you are spoiled for choice for getting around on local transport. But in some areas, if you're waiting, I don't know, an hour for a bus every, like in the timetable, then it's not good for you. But I think in cities, people love it. I would be paying upwards of 80 euro per month for the most expensive transport ticket. So it's a huge saving. The problem is that they're a bit worried about how it will be funded in future. So there are lots of like arguments going on at the moment about will it continue in 2024 and 2025? But honestly, Ben, I don't think they can take this away from us because <laughs> once you've given it, there's like the nine euro ticket. Everyone was just like, we want cheaper public transport. But, you know, there's also this question of how will the funding of infrastructure be? Is it actually just a discounted ticket for people who can already afford a more expensive ticket? So as you can imagine, there's lots of discussion about that. Thanks, Rachel. Really interesting to find out more about the success in Germany so far. I'm going to pass your number on to France's transport minister, if you don't mind. I think he could do with giving you a ring. And on the subject of Franco-German cooperation, Emma, there was another announcement about a new train link between Paris and Berlin. Was there not? There was, yes. They announced the return of the Paris-Berlin night train after a nine-year gap. At the moment, there's actually no direct train connection between Paris and Berlin. You have to change in Frankfurt and the journey takes nine hours. But from December this year, there will be a direct night train between Paris and Berlin. And then in 2024, there will be a direct high-speed train taking about seven hours between the two capitals. And that's really all part of this sort of EU-wide effort to improve train connections around the continent so that the much less environmentally damaging method of travel, that is rail travel, becomes a practical and a viable alternative to flying. Okay, so that starts in December. Night trains are back in fashion. They're all in the news at the moment. Where can you get a night train from Paris from at the moment? Well, at the moment, there's only one international National night train from Paris, and that's to Vienna. However, there are some more in the works, Berlin, as we just said, in December. And there are also discussions ongoing about routes to Milan, Venice and Barcelona. So they might be coming soon. But there are also quite a few domestic routes that you can take. Right now, you can take eight night train routes from Paris, including down to either Nice or Cannes on the Riviera. You can go to Briançon in the Alps. You can go to Albi in the southwest or to Lourdes if you're undertaking a pilgrimage. These trains, they go on special Antecité Train de Nuit routes, which take longer than the day trip in order to give you a good night's sleep. So, for example, Paris to Nice on the TGV will take you about six hours, but the night train leaves Paris at 10pm and arrives in Nice at 9am, just in time for breakfast along the seafront. One tip I think that's useful to know, if you're going to take a night train, you naturally arrive 
early in the morning. And if you're staying in a hotel or an Airbnb, you probably won't be able to check in until the afternoon. So several of the bigger French stations have reopened their left luggage lockers so you can leave your bags there. Alternatively, there is a French startup called Nanny Bags, which is in partnership with SNCF and they offer like a bag drop service. So you book it in advance, six euro bag, and you can just leave your bag in a hotel, a shop or a cafe that's near the station. And it just means you can explore during the day without having to lug your bag with you. Good advice. Uh, I've been on one of these night trains. Now they do cramp a few people in. I think there were six sleepers in our cabin. Although I think, am I right, Emma, you could pay a bit more and get the whole cabin to yourself, can you? You can, yeah. This is what I'm doing for my summer holiday, actually. Uh, of course you'd be yeah. doing this. In a, in a couple of weeks, I'm getting the night train down to Nice. And Booked yeah. out the whole train, I presume. <laughs> Cocktail bar. I, I asked if they would do that right. for me, but they would not. Um, but yeah, the, the standard sleeper, the couchette, as you said, is six bunk beds mm. in, uh, in one cabin. But you do have the option to book a, a four-person one or you can book a two-person cabin just for you, which is obviously more expensive. But that's what we're doing because it's our summer holiday. Fair um, enough. So I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be fun. Okay, look, we're not finished there with travel news. Jen, you've got news of another announcement this week that will be of particular interest to our readers from Ireland. Yeah, so there was another announcement. And this one specifically is about a combined ticket for rail and boat transport between France and Ireland. So for this one, we've known that it was coming for a while because France's transport minister, Clément Bon, really released a joint statement with the Irish government a few months ago, and we'd originally been told that the combined ticket would be here in 2023. In reality, it looks like we're going to have to wait until 2024 for it. Okay, 2024 is not too far away now, but what exactly is this combined ticket, Jen? So the idea is for people to be able to purchase their ferry ride and any connecting train journeys in one combined ticket. So for example, you'd get your train from Paris to Cherbourg and then your ferry from Cherbourg to Ireland in one ticket. Clément Bon said that this will be available starting next year, but for the time being, people can get a discount on their ferry ride when they book the rail and sail journey on the Irish or Brittany Ferries website. So basically, you book your ferry tickets and then you take a click-through link on the ferry website to the train website, you book your train tickets, and then once you've done that, you can send an email to the ferry provider. It has to be either Irish or Brittany Ferries with your ticketing information, and then they should give you a 10% discount on the price of your ferry ticket. And then there are a few reasons why France and Ireland are doing this. The first and most obvious is that it could represent a big economic opportunity for both countries to encourage people to travel more between them. And then the other is to encourage people to take alternative types of transportation besides flying. In the press release uh, that they sent out earlier this week, Clément Bon said that for the same distance traveled, the ferry emits 1% of what the plane emits in terms of CO2 per ton kilometer, and the train 8%. Okay. Someone who likes a train is our politics expert, John Litchfield, who joins us on the line again from Normandy. John, we're talking about new efforts in France to encourage train travel. It feels like the French government really wants to push it, but is there a lot more it needs to do to really get people off the roads and out of planes and into trains? Uh, reduced prices of train tickets, I think, would be the, the main thing. I mean, interestingly, that the new pass that Clement Bone, the transport minister, is suggesting may come in next summer doesn't apply to TGVs at all. It only applies to regional trains and local trains. And, you know, good luck if you want to go by train from Paris to Marseille or Paris to Lyon, even without going on a TGV these days. 
And the TGV prices can be very expensive. It's interesting that the Italian railways that have started a competitive train between Lyon, I think, and also Marseille and Paris are having some success by bringing prices down. The problem is that, you know, the TGV system in France is fantastic. I'm a great railway fan. I think the French did a sort of enormously courageous and, and important thing in, in leading the world, essentially, except possibly Japan in, in high-speed trains from the late 70s, early 80s onwards. But the cost has been enormous and the, and the burden of that debt from building on those lines takes the shape of a kind of fee which the railways have to pay to use the high-speed lines and that's very high and the SNCF therefore has to charge quite a lot for TGV tickets to order most times except when there's special concessions on offer. So it's often cheaper to drive. It's cheaper to go by plane from, say, Paris to Marseille than it is to catch the train. So how you do something about that, I don't know. I, I think uh, all kinds of you know ways are, are found. But it seems to me that the price of trains, if anything, is increasing rather than decreasing. And a lot of these, what you might call wheezers of Clermont Bone, the transport minister, like trying to sort of ban short-distance flights, which in fact had little effect on what was happening already, or this cheap pass next summer, which would be very welcome to young people especially, I don't think solves the actual problem of getting people on trains. That being said, TGVs had a boom summer because there were so many tourists here who were willing to pay the price. So it was difficult to get tickets on TGVs most of the summer. So it's a complicated thing. I think that this government or any future government is going to have to look at the pricing of trains if it wants seriously to move people off roads and um, out of planes and onto trains. Moving on, our reader question this week centres around a particular method of buying a property in France for cheaper than its market value. It's called viager. I think I've pronounced that rightly. Jen, you can correct me if I haven't. I know very little about it, but thankfully, Jen, you do. Just explain how this works. Yeah, well, you pronounced it just right, Ben. It is called viager, and it's one of my favourite topics. I actually did my final project for grad school on it. And basically, viager is a purchase that, you know, for a property or for a home that involves an older person selling their home for a price that's usually well below its market value. And in return, they get to stay in their home while the buyer pays them a monthly annuity for the rest of their life. And once the seller dies, the buyer gets to move into the property. Now, there are a few different types of viagé. Um, the most common one is the viagé occupé, which is the one that we just described, where the seller is still staying in their home. And theoretically, the viagé system can be a win-win because the buyer gets the property for a lower price than they normally would have paid, and the seller gets to stay in their home comfortably until their death. But I say theoretically because viagé is like a huge gamble. As the buyer, you're not allowed to know any intimate details health-wise about the seller. And so you're only allowed to know their age. And that's basically it. And so it's this guessing game as to how long they're going to live before you can move into the home that you've purchased. So you could basically buy a property off a person, you know, in their 80s, thinking you might be able to move in in a couple of years. You know, life expectancy in France is, is in the early 80s. But then, well... The owner proves more sprightly than you'd expected, Jen. Uh, this must have happened in the past, has it not? Yeah, there's a really famous example from the 1990s of a French woman called Jeanne Calmont, who lived until the age of 122. Oh. Uh, yeah, in fact, she is she counts as the world's oldest person, uh, or having been the world's oldest person at the time. And she had sold her house on Viagé in 1965, when she was already 90 years old, to a 47-year-old man named André-François Raffray. Now, Raffray paid her 2,500 francs a month, and probably thought that he'd be able to move in pretty soon, seeing as Calmont was already quite elderly. But he actually never got the chance to live in the house because he ended up dying two years before Jeanne. 
And over that 30-year period, he ended up paying over twice the house's value. Now, I wouldn't say that this is the norm. As of 2022, like you said, in France, the average life expectancy was 82, not 120-22. But I do think this story highlights some of the bizarreness of making a purchase where you're just waiting for the other person to die to be able to benefit from it. Mm, unfortunately, it appears not everyone has been willing to wait. We covered a horrible story recently about a French couple who are on trial in eastern France. They're accused of murdering the elderly owner of a property they had bought under the Viaget scheme. That's obviously a rare story, but the tale has brought the scheme under the spotlight in France in recent weeks. Jen, just generally, what should people think about before going down the Viaget route? There are a lot of things to consider. Um, as the buyer, assuming it's a Viaget occupé situation, meaning the person is still living in their home, uh, you are responsible for paying the property tax and the insurance on the property, and you assume responsibility for any major repairs. And even if the elderly person enters a nursing home, you still have to pay them that monthly annuity that you agreed to. On the other hand, Viaget can really offer like a great way to invest your money if you know that you're not planning on living in the property for a long time and if you maybe want to purchase in a particularly expensive area. For the seller, the main benefit is obviously getting to stay in your home, but the drawback is that your heirs would not inherit the property. So the setup tends to work best for older people without children. Mm, thanks, Jen. Really interesting stuff there about property in France. It's that time of the show where we do our French expression of the week. Which one of you two is going to explain all, Emma? Uh, yeah, it's you I've this been, week. Yes, I've brought you one of what my you absolute favourite French words. It is ralebol. Okay, it's, uh, yeah. this rings a bell. I've no idea how to translate it. Please carry on. Well, that's the thing. Nobody does really. It doesn't have an exact English translation. Its literal translation is a full bowl, but its closest translation in English is really like being fed up. But I think fed up is a bit more wimpy. Um, Rallebol is stronger and it's kind of more angry. It's kind of, you know, for use when you've had it and you're not going to take it anymore. Exactly. Yes, that's the the one. And how would you say it in French? Jean Rallebol? Yeah, exactly. So you can use it in a specific sense about a person. So I might frequently say Jean Rallebol avec toi, Ben. You do often, yeah. Yes, I'm completely fed up with you, Ben. Or you could say, you know, you're fed up with school or something like that. But you'll also hear people talk about a rallebol général, which means a, a general sense of being completely fed up with everything. So like unions quite often use it to talk about their workers being at their mm. end of their tether, sick of it all, and obviously about to go out on strike. The other good thing about it is that it's such a distinctive phrase that it can be really easily cannibalized. There's an example of a Twitter account in Paris called Rale Scoot, which is for people who are fed up with scooters. So it's Rale, they beginning uh, beginning bit. And the other reason that I love it is that it's part of this great French tradition of complaining. We, we know the French love to complain and there are about a million phrases in French to use when you're very fed up and want to complain about something. There is indeed. Uh, my favourite is uh, Johnny Marr. <laughs> I don't you know, quite pronounce it Johnny Marr, but the lead singer of the Smiths, his name is used to express fed upness. Do you know the lead singer of the Smiths? Jen, it might be a bit too young. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little young. Well, he, there is a singer-songwriter in the UK called Johnny Marr and it sounds obviously like Johnny Marr. And when you first come to France, you hear people just shouting, Johnny Marr! <laughs> like, what are they shouting about the singer in the Smiths for? That's my favourite. It's dead easy to use, obviously, but there's a few others. Jean Peplou is nice. Jean Peplou! Yeah, can't, can't yeah. take it anymore. Can't take it anymore, yeah. My, yeah. yeah, my favourite is Samasoul. Samasoul, yeah. Tu m'as saoulé! Yeah, yeah. Like, soule uh, is actually the word for to be drunk, being drunk. Yeah. yeah, and then it, when you use it in a sense of being angry, it's kind of like being exasperated, being so mm. fed up with something. Ça me soule. Ça me gonfle aussi. Like gonfler is to blow up. Ça me gonfle. You're blowing me up. 
Yeah, yeah. Blowing me up. About to, about to lose it. About to blow up. Yeah, great. Okay, some great expressions anymore, Emma. Which one do you use the most? Do you use these? I mean, you do uh, get fed up a lot. I, I do get fed up a lot. Yes, <laughs> uh, I, I do love Johnny Marr. It's uh, yeah. it's such an easy one to yeah. to remember once uh, once you know the Smiths. Exactly. Yeah. Brilliant. There's some language learning for you this week on Talking France, and that, of course, brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks to you all for joining us once again, and we'll be back with more next week. <laughs> 